Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Will you bow with me? Lord, as we gather together this morning to lift you up and to praise your name through prayer and thanksgiving, through song, and Lord, I pray through the investigation of the words you have for us in John 3, Lord, my prayer this morning is that you would give this room, give myself ears to hear what you've laid out in John 3, Lord, that you would allow me to get out of the way. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning with your church. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you've done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive the glory and the honor and the power For you have created all things, and because of your will, they were and were created. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Good morning. I'm Jacob Oberlin. It's nice to meet you all. I want to welcome our guests. I saw a few unfamiliar faces. Um, So welcome to FBCW this morning. Welcome to those that are joining us online. Uh, We miss you, uh, but we're happy that you're with us in that space. So this morning, uh, we're opening John 3. We've read through it once. We're going to end up reading through it a couple times throughout the course of our time together. Let me mark what time I started so I don't just go forever. I've got a certain allotted amount of time. Yeah, please do. And as we look through John 3, there's a couple of things that we need to land on together to have a common understanding of before we proceed. The first of which is grace. What is grace? What's the definition of grace? I think Jeremiah did a good job last week sort of setting that groundwork, and we're going to do that again this morning. I expected when I went to look at Miriam and Webster and their list of words to see a secular definition of grace, 
but I was pleasantly surprised. Grace, as defined by them, an unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration or sanctification. Another uh, version of the definition, a state of sanctification enjoyed through divine assistance. Truth, often capitalized, so they say, a transcendent, fundamental, or spiritual reality. Those are the definitions we're going to carry with us this morning as we unpack what is a super dense bit of scripture. If you've got sort of a a favorite idea, a I don't want to call it a pet idea, a pet theology. There's a chance we don't touch on it this morning because again, there's a lot here. I'm going to do my best to draw out where we see Jesus delivering grace and truth to Nicodemus. What what there is in this passage for us today, and how we can carry that to the world. The first first sort of or second sort of uh, foundational. Uh, place I think we need to land and I want to talk a little bit about is what what group does Nicodemus belong to right who is he who are his people what's his tribe I'm gonna go in verse 1 and 2 of John 3 now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews this man came to Jesus by night and said to him rabbi we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him so Jesus was, or sorry, Nicodemus was a Jew, a leader, and a Pharisee. The term Pharisee uh, has lineage in the Hebrew and Aramaic words perush and perushi. Very good chance I'm mispronouncing those. They mean one who is separated. Now this may refer to The Pharisees' separation from the Gentiles, from sources of ritual impurity, or from irreligious, non-religious Jews. The Pharisees were influential in the religious sect amongst the Jews and during the time of uh, the early church. Pharisees were popular with the masses, and so you've got a few groups of people that we'll just touch lightly on. So you've got the Pharisees. You've got the uh, Sadducees, right? The Sadducees are sort of the uh, upper crust of the political and religious community. They're the elites, right? They're, they're probably well-to-do and wealthy. The Pharisees and the Sadducees make up the ruling, council, the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And the Pharisees are outnumbered by the Sadducees on that council, but the Pharisees carry more weight because they have popular support. Throughout Scripture, you'll, you'll also see references to uh, scribes, right? those that are well-versed in the law, able to draft legal documents and the like. For the purpose of this discussion, we're going to look into who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were all about interpretation of Scripture. They certainly believed that they had the most right, the rightest, uh, interpretation of God's law. But they also carried with them traditions handed down from generation to generation. And they would say of those traditions that they have their lineage in the time of Moses. 
They elevated these, trans, uh, these traditions to being on par with God's word, with scripture. They attached utmost importance to the faithful and meticulous observance of the law and the bits that they added to the law. And they were going to be quick to make sure that you had the same fastidiousness in following the law. They were known for their emphasis on personal piety and were leaders of their local synagogues. Okay, so uh, for visitors that are here, this may align to something that you've done recently. So uh, if you're about to go to a church out of town or if you're going to visit a church in town, you want to go investigate uh, a group of believers or really any uh, organization, you might go to their website. Right? And you'll toggle around until you find what they believe. Right? This is a list of our belief statement. If the Pharisees had a website that corporately informed the Jews of their religious beliefs, the what we believe section, it might read something like this. Some of this is tongue-in-cheek, so please keep that in mind. We accept the written word as inspired by God. We do not accept the written word as inspired by God in the case of Deuteronomy 4.2, which says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So, that's bullet three in transition. In addition to the 600-ish laws within the Torah, we believe the traditions we've received generation over generation stand with equal authority as God's law, and you're welcome, because 600 is not enough. We believe God controls all things, but decisions made by individuals also affect life's course. We believe there will be a resurrection of the dead. We believe there is an afterlife with reward and punishment on individual basis. We believe the Messiah will set up his kingdom on earth. We believe that you should do as we say and not as we do. We believe we are justified before the Lord by our performance in keeping the law and stuff. Grace and truth are missing from the hearts and doctrine of the Pharisees. Now all of this was prophesied in Isaiah 29:13 and is referenced in Mark 7, 6 through 7. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Generally, Pharisees were self-righteous, fully invested in the delusion that they're pleasing God by keeping the law, or at least some of the law. One of the words that we'll see that's uh, far and away uh, a word that you, Jesus uses to describe the Pharisees is hypocrite. So most of the law. However, in Scripture, we also see that not 100% of the Pharisees fit this mold or this mindset. Believers like Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Paul, and others, as recorded in Acts 15, were followers of Jesus. They were Christians. 
So let's look at just for a second. So, you know, Paul has started in, in, in Philippians 3.9. He started as a Pharisee. And in Philippians, he says, he's basically giving his credentials. Uh, he was an accomplished Pharisee who was converted to Christ. And he says about all the accolades and all the good things he had collected that he would willingly, willingly and quickly trade them in starting in verse 9, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All right, so in a nutshell, that's who the Pharisees were. And the question then is, okay, well, how does Jesus deal with them generally? How does he interact with this bit of the population. The estimate on the number of uh, Pharisees during this time is about 6,000. We see multiple interactions in Scripture of Jesus with the Pharisees. And they're generally not something that I would say that I would like to be a part of on the receiving end. Their conversations are instructive uh, but oftentimes hard to read. Much less, I'm sure, be the recipient of that message from Christ. Matthew 23 uh, has a lot to say, um, or a lot recorded with regard to Jesus' description of the Jews. Sorry, the uh, Pharisees. I'm just going to run down a few uh, descriptors that he uses. In Matthew 23, seven times he uses the word hypocrite to describe the Pharisees, or a derivative of hypocrite. He calls them blind guides, blind fools, full inside of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. He calls them lawless within, serpents, and a brood of vipers. One particular bit of that passage in Matthew 23 stands out to me. Verse 15, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Whoa. Just as a quick aside, we've been talking about uh, being nice. This is a topic that's a part of our conversation at the house and instances where being nice is maybe the opposite of truth and grace. Um, and this passage certainly comes to mind. It doesn't sound nice. Another quick aside. With regard to the law of God, the Pharisees wholly misunderstood what God's law was, and what it was intended to show. Scripture tells us that the law is truth, Psalm 119, 142. The law is holy, just, and good, Romans 7, 12. The law is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, and righteous. Psalm 19, 7 through 9. The law is love, Romans 13, 10. 
The Pharisees did not understand that God's character is shown through his law and commandments. Not only that, did they not understand why the law existed? In their minds, the law was the path by performance to salvation, to to redemption, to being seen as whole and right in God's sight. God's nature through the law is contrasted highly with ours and with theirs as we demonstrate our utter and complete inability to follow God's standard. The Jews should have been in, 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 uh, motivated, drawn into, compelled to inquire, once comparing their lives to the law of God and seeing the gulf of disconnect between the two, the inconsistency, what must I do to be saved? Just real quick, and not for nothing, that's still true today. The question, what must I do to be saved, only comes after a complete and clear distinction made between the nature of God and the nature of man. So let's contrast Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus with other times that Jesus talks to or with the Pharisees. So how does Jesus engage with Nicodemus? Starting in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, you're a teacher You are the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I have told you, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Three t- so Jesus makes this message fairly straightforward because three times in this passage, uh, in this text, he says, truly, truly, where's the truth? Uh, just look at the neon sign, Jake. So truly, truly here is, uh, is connected to um, a word that uh, in the ancient language that we use as amen today. So at the end of a, a prayer or in agreement or, or um, uh, affirming what's been said, uh, so be it is another way that amen is, is sort of translated or thought of at the end of um, 
of a statement, both in the Bible and as we use it today. Nicodemus would have understood that when used at the beginning of a statement, that the language to follow would mean that Jesus has firsthand knowledge of what comes next. Or even more, that he's the originator of the truth that follows. And again, he says this three times. Unless one's born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then later, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is not the standard conversation that we see between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus' words and message are completely wrapped in grace. Grace is the point of the conversation. But Jesus makes sure to uh, to communicate to Nicodemus that what he's saying is true and that he has the, the authority to speak it. This grace-filled message is not necessarily easy for Nicodemus to hear or to understand. As we see in the text, I imagine his head is spinning, not in like the exorcist kind of way, but like his brains are just discombobulated. But Nicodemus's load has just been lightened by what he's heard. It's not within his power to live well enough to save himself. So Jesus' first act of grace, I contend, toward Nicodemus is that he does not group Nicodemus with his colleagues. This is a different engagement. He doesn't speak to and deal with Nicodemus as a part of a group or tribe that Jesus would normally and routinely call out for their hypocrisy. And why the difference? So in contrast to the hard hearts of the Pharisees that we often see in the New Testament, Nicodemus is curious. He's open-hearted. And he's seeking the truth. So there is a correlation here to uh, the series that we just came through on four-chair discipleship, right? So if you picture that graphic, chair one uh, had a few titles. One was lost, one was seeker. The contrast in that chair, the different versions of lost, right? You've got the Pharisees, sort of that general group who, who are lost, and they're not seeking, right? They're seeking to entrap. They're seeking to... uh uh, t- uh, pull Jesus into a slip-up. They're seeking to destroy Christ. They're lost. The seeking that Nicodemus is doing is a genuine seeking. He's on the hunt for truth. Nicodemus' outreach, openness, and curiosity to better understand and align to the things of God is met by Jesus with grace. Jesus demonstrates tenderness and long-suffering with Nicodemus' difficulty in grasping the, tr- the, the truth that Christ is delivering to him. Moreover, grace abounds in what he reveals to Nicodemus. Jesus invites Nicodemus to believe in him, to accept the grace and rebirth 
that would be his through faith in Christ. Again, if I'm Nicodemus, man, my head is scrambled. Like, think about living a life that is steeped in performance, steeped in the do's and don'ts, steeped in judgment. And Jesus calls Nicodemus to something completely different. Right? I love that phrasing, like rebirth, completely different. Born as something different. Something of the Spirit. Nicodemus didn't have this text, but in John 1, 12 through 14, we see a helpful and insightful rephrasing. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as this only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus' invitation to Nicodemus was to let go of a performance-based mindset. His invitation is to take the grace that Christ offers by putting his faith in Jesus, not in himself. In my imagination, so we're going to my, this is a foray into dangerous waters, but if, we, if you allow me, in my imagination, I picture Nicodemus determining the point at which he, he was going to call a meeting. Right, The point at which he said, I got to talk to this guy. It may have been when Jesus, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, says, Come to me, all who are labored and are heavy. I'm sorry. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's just after this statement from Jesus, this calling, that the Pharisees begin their testing and attempt to trick Christ. I picture Nicodemus being there in the mix for both of those engagements, right? Both of those conversations. And it's here that I can empathize with Nicodemus. Man, there is an, in Jacob, right? This is my temptation. I'm not putting this on you. Man, there is an allure to the surety, the perceived surety the mirage of control over equating goodness and salvation and holiness with how I act, how I think, how I speak, how I whatever. It's the same temptation that Nicodemus and the Pharisees were steeped in. Performance-based. Right? In America, that's a thing too, right? Like you can't escape the performance based nature of our culture. Performance is rewarded. But like many, if not all things in Scripture, man's wisdom, 
doesn't track in the gospel. Titus 3.5 is a great reminder. Actually, I'm going to go to that. I'm going to start in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy and by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hmm. So what is in that for us? That's the lesson that Nicodemus received. Is it different today? Is it different for Jacob? Or for you? The exact same message delivered to Nicodemus applies to us. In this passage, like I said, man, this is a tight bundle of truth and of grace. But in it is the whole of the gospel. Regardless of whether we do or don't face the temptation of living a performance-based faith, faith, Jesus' message of of grace applies to each of us in light of the true God-appointed standard that we have been and will be unable to keep. So in verse 14, we're going to pick up, but before we do, in Numbers 21, 4 through 9, there's an account of the the Israelites in 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 the desert while they're wandering They get frustrated. And they speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Picking up in 3.14 of John, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What a fantastic correlation. What a fantastic drawing back to the Old Testament that Jesus makes here. 
He says to Nicodemus, do you remember, do you recall from Scripture what Moses did for the Israelites? He says, I'm going to do that same thing. Man, the, the, the fantastic uh, message here, you need only look to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Look to Christ and be healed. And it's not, as Tony said, you know, John 3.16, I think, can often be interpreted, and I don't mean the way it's written, I mean the way we hear it and take it in, can often be interpreted as, we as a people are so lovable, so good. God loved us so much that he couldn't help himself, couldn't live without us. No. Have you met us? No. It was for his glory, for the glory of his son, that God sent Christ into this world. Praise the Lord that a fantastic side effect of that, a fantastic intent rolled up into this rich and interwoven plan that God has is that now we have the opportunity to benefit from Christ's sacrifice. Glory to God. So how does this affect our interaction today? with those we might meet, be it from the upper crust of society, be it from the dregs of society, I would suggest that for the sake of the gospel, we have the meeting. We take the time. We allow that person in such a divided culture today on whatever unit of measure you want to use, allow that person to be disconnected from their tribe from their group. If in pursuit of truth and relationship with Christ, extend grace as you deliver truth and as you deliver the message of grace. Fearlessly proclaim the truth of the Word of God. Fearlessly proclaim the character of God and generously give the message of grace with grace. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Deliver the truth of the grace that is available to all who look to Christ.